Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Friday, September 25th, 2020. I'm John Bodhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, Associate Editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Senior Writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And Executive Editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Uh, we will not be doing the show on Monday, as it is Yom Kippur, so we will try to uh, keep you... Um, so interested that you will just listen to this for, you know, until Tuesday when we will obviously be doing some form of debate preview. And then I guess also some kind of discussion of the uh, Supreme Court nominee who apparently is Amy Coney Barrett, though we have to wait till tomorrow until it's declared that it's Amy Coney Barrett. Um, Missed an opportunity here, John. You can say we're just calling a lid for Monday. Right. Oh, that's th- Thank you very much. Yes, we're calling a lid. Um once again, I am fascinated by this this effort to create a news story out of the fact that Biden, by refusing to be in the news to the greatest extent possible, um, is likely, I don't know, I mean, it's possible that he's making a terrible mistake or that this is all, but I mean, is likely uh, uh, pulling off one of the great uh, campaign strategies of all time, which is he's being given an opportunity to remain silent while his rival uh, does everything he can to remain the focus and center of attention when that's probably the last thing he should or want, should wish to be. And uh, as I detail in a column in the New York Post this morning, um, he uh, looking at what happened this week with his inability to say, no, I will uh, obviously there'll be a peaceful transfer of power, you know, uh, that he gets himself into trouble and then has to get himself out of trouble or, you know, rely on the fact that he has 42% support to show that when all the dust clears, he's basically where he was before. But then he loses days. He loses days, and it's uh, uh, and I sort of liken this to the scrambling quarterback, except that the scrambling quarterback usually, if a scrambling is successful, he gets way behind the line of scrimmage. People chase him. He tires them out, and then he ends up with a gain of you know five or six or seven yards, or maybe more. And Trump doesn't gain. He ends up back at the line of scrimmage every single time. So he runs, he gets exhausted. His people's chasing him get exhausted. He doesn't gain. They don't lose. And everything remains static. And I think it's fairly clear that if everything remains static, he doesn't win the election. So um, Biden's lid, uh, people really do seem to think, isn't a calculated strategy. And I think it's a strategy, which is just let him let him go. Let Trump have the spotlight. That's the best thing for us is to have him blather on and make himself a figure of constant, endless controversy. Well, yeah, I mean, that's at least you're engaging in some form of analysis here. Uh, I mean, oh, thank you. <laughs> now, what we've seen from mainstream reporters is that these nine days of lids over the course of September, something like nine days, beginning in the first week of September, is all debate prep. It's obviously debate prep. And how dare you actually think 
that it's anything other than debate prep. He is so um, prepped. Oh my God. The and prep. that's the thing. At, at least Republicans he, are now embracing the line that he's yeah. been prepping so much. He better be scintillating. On well, that and, and even if you don't buy into the conspiracy theorizing about Biden's mental capacity, the, the one question I do have as a not conspiracy theorist is if this isn't strategy, if it is about an energy, you know, kind of uh, preserving his energy so he's in fighting form next week for the debates, that is that should be a concern to voters in this one sense. The job he is running for is the most demanding physically and mentally on earth, practically. If he can't run a campaign where he's out there day after day doing what he needs to do, that doesn't bode well for his ability as the, the you know, leader of the free world to do that either. It's an extremely demanding job. That's why they all, except for Trump, who's obviously a die job. They all go gray over the course of their term in office. It's extremely demanding. If he's not up to that, that is something that voters should weigh um, as a small point. I mean, I, I, I mean, wonder. It's also something I think that the, the, Trump administ- the Trump campaign would have been smart to have hit on more frequently as opposed to the um, or at least in addition to the vessel for radicalism message. I mean, that he's. Um, that the that the campaign and the candidate is this sort of phantom who's not really there, um, who who sort of weaves in and out of every issue, too, and doesn't really declare himself, you know, that there's a vaporous quality to the entire Biden thing that that Trump would be have been smart to have picked up on that. Well, so let me let me just go at this in two ways. One is Biden is leading by six, six and a half points. And the state polling, one good uh, Trump had one good set of state polls from Washington Post, ABC News. But otherwise, the polling this week confirms various senses that Biden is ahead in Ohio, in Iowa. He is tied in Georgia. He is ahead in Florida. Uh, if uh, and and he is already way ahead, according to these polls, in Michigan and in and in Wisconsin. So the, the election is over. If the if the polling isn't wildly wrong, I mean, you know, or if there isn't a turnabout, right? So, um, uh, once again, we have to then ask, what is it that Biden is doing wrong? I mean, I, I think it's fair to say that uh, looking at this, you could say this is you know worrisome because he's not up to the job. Um, but the fact that it's uh, so. Um, it just seems to be working in his favor, speaks against the idea that this is happening because they have no choice but to let it happen this way. That That's number one. Number two, I don't think that there's any uh, person on earth who sort of deals with Jaron, you know, sort of like, like the uh, science of aging or the medicine of aging who thinks that you need to sleep for a week before you engage in a debate, right? You're supposed to be doing crossword puzzles and, you know, engaging and be, if you want mental acuity, you want to keep your brain engaged, not, you know, not, not be sleepy and tired. So I, I just don't think in the absence of the fact that he is actually affirmatively senile, if that, you know, that, that this is a strategy that they would necessarily be pursuing. Uh, you know, to keep him quiet because he really needs his rest, you know? First of all, it's next Tuesday. But I think they have determined, uh, this would be my speculation, that their theory of the case is that every time Trump opens his mouth, it's good for them. And that 
they were scared by the Supreme Court nomination possibility because it meant that the story would shift from Trump does this, Trump does that, Trump says this, Trump says that, uh, to something else and to having a, another figure. And this may re- really well be the case that another major figure is going to step onto the scene and be a dominating figure in American culture in October. And that could help Trump because it will move the spotlight away from him. And that is what, what, what he needs. I think that's their theory of the case because they can make news anytime they want, including not with Biden saying it, they can issue statements. They can issue, you know, you know, vice president Joe Biden said this today, da, 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 you know, or, or whatever, you know, even if he couldn't, you know, even if he was like lying in the bed curled in the fetal position, they can make news at will. They choose not to. And that, that has to be strategic. Okay. The, the only thing I'll say to that is that they have a huge um, assist from the mainstream media, because I think if this were a Republican candidate who was challenging a Democratic incumbent, who was who had, was calling lids like this and, and, and uh, pursuing this strategy, it wouldn't be, as Noah said earlier, they wouldn't be simply accepting the line that this was debate prep, right? They would be challenging that. They would be demanding more statements. They would be trying to unearth whether there was some something else going on. Oh, I mean, yeah. and is not doing their job. And if that candidate had the record of flubs and performances that Biden had, it would every headline would be, you know, questions right. arise over, you know, uh, capacity. Yeah. <laughs> But right. then there would be the meta analysis of whether we're helping the campaign by reporting this way because we're, we're lowering debate expectations and then right. we're effen- essentially assisting the campaign. Right. Everybody overthinks everything. Okay, look, let, let's face it. Like, obviously, we, you know, I've been, I've spent 40 years in the mainstream media as a, a practically as a conservative and it's been biased for 40 years and it's worse now than it was. 15 years ago, and uh, though it was kind of in odd ways, marginally worse in like 1979, 1980 than it is now, uh, in part because of the domination of the three networks and really five newspapers. And that's now, of course, not not the case. But uh, yeah, so they're, they're playing, they, they, you know, they are they are dealing with the reality that faces them, which is that they have a compliant press and therefore they they are they don't have to find themselves in the position of having these questions raised. Although I will say this, which is everything is primed if Biden goes up, as we say in theater, you know, at during the debates and loses his place, loses his train of thought, or does a Rick Perry thing or something for everyone to swipe down and start talking about this at a moment that is precisely the worst possible moment for him when he wants to really close the sale. Um, so it's not as though it can't happen. Obviously, it can happen at a moment's notice. Um, the Hillary Clinton people would tell you that the media aren't biased because they hated her. So if they were if they were just ideologically biased, they hated her so much that they destroyed her you know, according to them and that she was right to keep an arm's length from them and be mean to them and all that because they were so horrible to her. Now, I think that's her paranoia. They would have been happy to turn Hillary Clinton into Ruth Bader Ginsburg if she had made it possible for them to do so by not taking $675,000 from Goldman Sachs and by closing down the Clinton Foundation because she would say, I'm running for president and therefore 
you know, it's very important. I look like Caesar's wife and therefore, I'm, you know, we're doing whatever we can to even not even have a semblance of a conflict, you know, of an appearance of a conflict of interest. And then it would have been, you see, she's like, oh, blah, blah, blah. And she didn't do it. So they were primed. She had a 65% approval rating when she left the left Foggy Bottom. I mean, they were primed to treat her like the a lionized figure. She wouldn't let them because she's, and this is, you know, I mean, she's crazy. She's a crazy <laughs> person. She's a paranoid, crazy person. Now, paranoids, you can have enemies, and she had enemies, but she mm. was also in unable to take advantage of the natural predilection of the press to be nice, to be nice. A to a female candidate, B to a Democrat, C to her as a trailblazing pathbreaker. Yeah, but she also refused to the, the, the narrative that they wanted her to embrace over and over again, which must have chafed a little for her, was the victim, right? She was the victim of her own husband, but she stayed with the husband. They were buck raking with this foundation. Um, and she didn't want to see herself as a victim, even though that was actually the media narrative that was, I think, the most appealing for a certain demographic of, of journalists, particularly the, the sort of uh, female journalists at, at elite institutions that saw themselves in Hillary. Um, and her overcoming narrative, actually, she overcame a little too well in some sense, right? I mean, she didn't and she she shut down those conversations about Bill Clinton a lot mm-hmm. on the trail, if you recall. Um, yeah. And they wanted her to wallow in her, you know, wronged wife status a little bit more. Yeah. So I'm just saying, yeah, so she is now um, – so Biden is taking advantage, as Hillary could not take advantage, of his uh, – of media bias – uh, in the easiest possible way, which is he is not feeding any flames, right? He is not giving them anything that they feel of necessity they have to jump on um, by not responding, by not, you know, providing kindling, right? And all Trump is, is Trump is daily kindling for the anti-Trump fire, which I think should bring us to a conversation we've been wanting to have for a couple of days, but we keep getting uh, sidetracked on, which is this um, doorstopper of a piece in The Atlantic by Barton Gelman about the threat to our democracy posed by the period uh, between the election and the, uh, you know, and January 20th, uh, 2021, assuming that the results are either inconclusive or close or, you know, confused. Um, and this piece, which is another, is an example. Here's the problem. So I read this piece. I, I texted you guys. I said, this is deranged. This article is deranged. And then about three seconds later, Trump was unable to say that he would, you know, he would abide by a peaceful transfer of power. In which case, I still think the piece is deranged. Theoretically, but practically speaking, I kind of lose the argument that you don't really have to engage with it seriously because Trump is somehow making us engage with it seriously by his uh, weird behavior. Which he's doubled down on. He's, yeah. He, yeah. Well, because, of course, he's now following the Roy Cohn rule, which is you never apologize and you never explain, you never go back and all that. Um and then there was this other weird detail, which is this a story out of Pennsylvania about how not there were nine spoiled ballots. There were ballots found in a tr- d- ditch or something, and um, 
and uh, they were uh, dirty ballots and they were all for Trump and they were thrown away. So if you dig into the story a little bit, it appears that uh, they were uh, spoiled ballots that they hadn't, as we've been talking about, they hadn't, they, they, they may have arrived and been opened uh, in some facility because they were by an election facility because they were, they were mailed there and then they opened them and it, the, the privacy envelope was not inside that's supposed to hide the ballot. And so they were just thrown away and they were nine ballots and they were for Trump. Now, the reason I bring this up is to say that a news story came out. The Justice Department is looking into this and there's, it appears that Kaylee McInerney, the White House press secretary, knew about the story before it was made public which raises the prospect that they have been hunting for, that the Justice Department and the Trump administration have been hunting for a spoiled ballot story that they could retail to make the case that the balloting is, ter- you know, everything is terrible. However, it was, if, it was, if it was in fact nine ballots in one place that were spoiled and somehow they were mishandled, but they were never going to be used, how would they even know that they were all for Trump? They could only know that they were all for Trump if somebody opened them by mistake or opened them because they weren't supposed to be out, whatever. So that little story then says to me, there's something more going on here that means you can't just say that there isn't some kind of weird plan or, you know, sort of half-assed scheme to kind of say that anything that was not voted on on election night, every ballot that was not voted on election night is compromised. Not at all. Um, Yeah. I mean, you can't read that DOJ press release, which was subsequently uh, edited and revised to be less crazy. Um, It's, it's clearly part of a strategy. And to be fair to, to Barton Gelman in this Gelman piece, you know, there's this, it's full of really convoluted machinations. And one of them is the notion that the Trump campaign can, appoint loyal electors in battleground states where Republicans have the legislative majority and appoint a slate of uh, electors that the governor would have to sign off on. So if it's a Democratic governor, it's it's a little more complicated, but they would essentially be replacing these electors with uh, their own own people, which I'm not entirely even sure how this would work. In July, the Supreme Court issued a ruling unanimously saying the states have the power to require presidential electors to vote for their party's candidate for president. So the faithless electors is essentially a thing of the past. But I think that's a law. That's a law. In other words, you have to actually pass an affirmative law. The the law that says the electors must, you know, must be tied to the results of the election has to be passed by the, you know, and signed into law. So if it's well, not anyway, a law, it doesn't function. That thing in the, in the Gelman, campaign, uh, Gelman piece came explicitly from the Trump campaign. He, those were his sources within so he, the so he's, so, legal team so he and says. Republican Party. Yeah, whatever that means. So what they want you, I mean, it's it's hard to avoid the impression that there's a concerted effort to want you to be on the edge of your seat here about whether or not the president will accept election results that don't go his way. Just sort of a, you know, apprehension that they want to cultivate. Yeah. But that doesn't make this piece less crazy. I mean, the fun, there were some really fun aspects of the piece. So now we've been, now that this prospect has been raised, you know, the notion here is that this is going to be a very abnormal election year. It's going to take a long time to count ballots in places like Florida and Arizona. They count, they count the early vote early and they actually start tabulating before election day, but not in places like Pennsylvania. 
So, and there's the naked ballot controversy, which is so convoluted, it's impossible to even describe. But the bottom line is there's going to be a lot of ballots that are probably going to be contested and thrown out, and some will just be invalid. And it's going to, you know, maybe it'll it'll be election week, maybe it'll be election month. But that leads um, to these really weird scenarios where you have these competing slates of electors that, that Congress and the House has to has to sign sign off on on January 6th when they meet to certify these election results. And the the culmination of this Gilman scenario is fantastical. And you you really have to delve into it because it's it's quite entertaining. So his scenario is that Pence is calling off this the rolls here. And before he, he goes to Pennsylvania and tries to certify the Pennsylvania results, but he can't move on because just as Democrats did in uh, 2000, when they were certifying the results of Florida, there will be an attempt to object. That objection failed. But in this case, it would succeed. And Nancy Pelosi would expel all the senators from the chamber of the House where everybody's meeting to certify these results. And now Pence can't complete the roll call. He can't complete the certification of the results of Pennsylvania before he moves on to Rhode Island. And then as the Constitution requires. And then Pelosi says, we're going to stall indefinitely. And then the count is incomplete by Inauguration Day, at which point she becomes the acting president of the United States. So the ultimate irony of of this Gelman scenario is the bad guy here is Nancy Pelosi. She's the villain. She assumes total control. She's only the villain in your scenario if you haven't watched The West Wing. Because, of course, there was a whole thing in The West Wing where the uh, Speaker of the House becomes president... Because something happens to the vice president, the president has MS or whatever the hell it is, and then John Goodman is the uh, is the uh, is the speaker of the house. He's got a cat. He moves it. It turns out he's a pretty good president, even though he's Newt Gingrich. Like you know, he's 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 tough and he's resourceful, and he doesn't want to be president. And he wants to give it back as soon as he can. Wonderful fantasy world uh, uh, of Aaron Sorkin there, or not Aaron Sorkin at this point. I think it was uh, John Wells. But um, nonetheless, like, there's a whole there's a whole world of uh, liberal pornographic fantasy, the political pornography, that involves all kinds of interesting plays that will involve the saving of democracy from evil Republicans through interesting machinations that will make fantastic uh, HBO movies in you know 15 years. Right, that's very exciting. What we're staring down the barrel of is an extremely boring election night, which ends up being over by about 9.30 when we get the panhandle coming in. Okay, so let, let's talk about that a little bit. So the, the, so the counter scenario to the uh, counting of election month, right, the counting of the month, is that uh, the polls as they stand now are pretty accurate. Uh, Biden's ahead by seven nationally. Uh, He probably wins by seven nationally. And the state polls are pretty accurate, which means that Biden wins by two in Florida and that because of this early counting uh, that you, you mentioned, that Biden wins Florida. And... Once Biden wins Florida, if such a thing should happen, just as Trump winning Florida in 2016 was the holy crap moment that caused everybody to say, oh, my God, something that we can't believe is happening is happening, that where the temperature goes way up, uh, Biden winning Florida will calm everybody down. MSNBC will calm down. 
the networks will calm down because those 29 electoral votes not being in the, you know, in the Trump camp, suddenly his math gets very, he has to run the table practically everywhere that he's behind to win. And so maybe formally they won't be able to declare a winner on election night because Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin are all going to allow mail-in ballots to come in over the next, uh, the succeeding couple of days, but they're going to be pretty close, right? That's basically the scenario. So there isn't a formal winner, but we, we go to bed with Biden around 240 electoral votes and Trump around 150 or 160 or something like that. So but Biden, there will be so much pressure on Trump in that scenario to concede the night of. <laughs> and when he doesn't, which he won't, they'll say, oh, you know, this is it. This mm-hmm. is upon us. But the day after concession isn't an abnormal thing. Hillary didn't no, Hillary until the next day. I don't think Gal Gore did either. And and Hillary, well, and Hillary Gore, lost clearly. There, there, there was, oh, no, yeah. Kerry, 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 I'm thinking. Kerry, right. Kerry didn't carry because of this weird Ohio, this weird fantasy that Ohio was, you know, going to was going to switch hands the way Florida they thought was switching hands in, uh, uh, you know, into, in 2000 anyway. um, But the Gelman piece, right. Lays out all these scenarios where Trump creates there, all these conditions. And of course, one of the interesting things about this endless piece is that it fails to deal with the possibility of the reverse, which is that um, Trump wins where it appears that Trump wins and the country is set on fire. So I'm. This is this is my concern: is that we're getting a lot of uh, preparation for how how they can handle an obvious win by Biden that Trump will try to you know snatch away from him or or somehow block, but they are not mentally prepared for an upset, another upset. They really aren't. And I and and the only preparation I see happening is in the radical fringe that's like we're going to burn it all down. That's the one group that's really eager and really ready to go. And that should be a concern. I mean, where are the level-headed, moderate centrists on the left who are saying, okay, we have this plan, thank you, Gelman, but what do we do if it's clear that he's winning even by a thread? Because we've had years of let's abolish the Electoral College because it's not legitimate. We need to pack the courts. We need to do all these things because he's a fascist. Um, voter suppression. Voter suppression. I mean, they are not mentally prepared. For the but- last two weeks, Three weeks, they have been actively working themselves up into the exact same mental condition that Donald Trump is in, which is that if they don't win, it is due to fraud. Oh, but I'd say it is completely illegitimate. I agree with you, but I'd say it's been going on for longer than that, because for months we've had these stories of we're not going to know who won this election for ages. We're going to have no idea the fog that they are throwing up in advance of how this, you know, meanwhile, we've had successful relatively clean elections, you know, countless times. But this time it's going to be such a confusing fog. We're not going to know. And here's why we're not going to know. And I think that was all very unhealthy for the country because that, and and it was all done with the idea that we have to prepare the American people for this, for this eventuality where we're not going to know who's president. But I think that threw up this terrible, um, sort of screen of of um, unsteadiness about the outcome of the election that allowed for all this um, 
uh, sort of apocalyptic um, play to happen. And by the way, allowed for Trump to be asked in the first place if he would accept if if, if there would be a peaceful transition of power. Look, right. So this isn't great, right? It's it's not healthy to have this much these many legitimacy narratives around the president. But it's not new, so I'm kind of I, I I don't share the apocalyptic view here. The notion that presidents are not legitimate in their elections dogged George W. Bush after 2000. It dogged him after he won Ohio because of the Diebold voting machines. If Mitt Romney had won, he would have been ta- tagged by the exact same conspiracy theory because there was this notion that Tag Romney had these associations with voting machines. And then, of course, this president, Hillary Clinton herself, has said Donald Trump is an illegitimate president. And nevertheless, they take the oath of office and perform the duties of the executive branch as they would for the last couple of hundred years. So while these narratives aren't great for social stability, they're not 100 percent consequential as to how the government organizes and functions. Except that we're now at a the the moment right now, I think, uh, socially is a little bit different in that we do have people who've spent the last, you know, several months taking to the streets over everything, including, you know, criminals who who shoot at cops and then get but shot on in return. They're not taking to the streets over politics. This is I very important. You know, here in D.C., they're they're going into the DHS's apartment, the head of the DHS's apartment. They're going to Mitch McConnell's house every day and trying to wake him up. I mean, there are they're small. It's a small group. I agree. But I think uh, the, the, the Hillary Clinton point to me is really interesting because this week she was going on and on about how, you know, how it's terrible that that Trump said that he wouldn't necessarily uh, abide by what the election results were. She's been for, for, as you said, for months going on and on about how, you know, he's not legitimate president. Biden shouldn't concede. I mean, she's, she's been on the other side of this argument for a while. I'm concerned. My concern is that the, the people who first turned out post George Floyd shooting, you know, the kind of the nice, the nice white suburbanites who, who wanted to show their, their uh, um, social wokeness, if you have a lot of Democratic Party leaders after Election Day saying he's trying to steal an election, you need to get to the streets, you need to get out there and show that he cannot steal this democracy. I think you're going to see a lot of people do that. And I don't think that would have that didn't happen after George Bush. It didn't happen after Romney. But they've been kind of the, the messaging has been clear and the messaging has been attached to the idea that you take to the streets. Like if you follow the social media and follow the sort of uh, woke left activist types, they've they have been laying groundwork for protest. But it did the, happen after Donald Trump. After no, Donald Trump's election, there were marches in the streets for days. During on Inauguration Day, there was violence across the country. Right. So the whole point here is that uh, what we have seen over the course of this year might be a prelude uh, or, a, or a kind of dress rehearsal in an odd way for mass demonstrations uh, in which people, just as conventional liberal people, ended up in the streets for Black Lives Matter, very, people who would never otherwise participate in some kind of a street action are, uh, you know, 65, 66, 67, 68 million people are going to vote for Biden. A Biden voter could just go into you know the 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 idea will be that it is praiseworthy to do this you're exercising your right to protest and talk about your vote and the, the danger to democracy and all of that and we could see action of a scale that we have never seen in this country in, numerically um 
and that all of this has been prepped by the romanticization of of going into the streets. It's like you know this weird thing happens where uh, the vi- viability, value, and 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 nobility of our system is rooted according to a certain type of theory in the right to and accessibility of protest. Not because we build institutions that guard people's liberty from the government, not because we, you know, uh, we, we, uh, we have an unconditional, uh, uh, you know, we, we focus on the personal liberty as opposed to other countries, which focus on social solidarity, all kinds of stuff like that. No, it's that everything's good as long as you can protest. If you can't protest, then it's bad. And protest itself is good. Peaceful protest. I mean, I sound like Mostly. Mo- but peaceful. Right. But the point is the Constitution, it, w- what we protect is the right to peacefully assemble and, and protest. Right. We have not seen consistent peaceful. We've seen, right, the mostly peaceful euphemism uh, covers a host of sins. And I think that'll unfortunately continue. I, no, the whole point is that the protest is protest is obviously something that is part and parcel of what a free people can do. But it is not the highest expression not only of that, what what people can do. Mostly, the highest expression of what people can do is like to go along, have a family, pay your taxes, you know, vote, and you know, be a good citizen. That's what people can do. You are not somehow better or a better participant in you know in our social structure because you stand in the, in a street with a lot of other people. In fact, that is a weird. I wouldn't say it's anti-American, but the notion of mass action is not what America is about. America is about the rights of the individual, not about your, not about being part of a Rousseauian collective, you know, collective mind uh, that expresses the will of the people. And not only that, the right to do that though is under zero threat. No one has. Who has a problem? With any, I mean, you may not like it, but n- no one is cracking down on peaceful protests. In fact, including Trump, by the way, who is even he's even paid lip service to, you know, yeah, I'm not talking about the protest, I'm talking, you know, protests are one thing, but uh, you know, we're talking about rioters. Um, and not only has there been no threat to it, only the protesters have gotten the COVID exemption. It's it's the thing you can do, you're supposed to do when you're not mm-hmm. supposed to do anything else. But the people who are like, we're going to burn this stuff down, they don't mean themselves, right? They mean the young radicals that they've been sort of like attaching themselves to and, and telling them to go out into the to the streets. And this is what you see. We've, I did a piece for the website not too long ago about these academics and the humanities who romanticize, as we said, this um, violent protest about how effective is this Oberlin professor is like violence actually gets the attention of politicians much more than um, peaceful protests. And this other academic who is... Um, uh, talking about the the virtues of necklacing, which is this uh, practice in apartheid South Africa, where they would strap a tire around Africans who worked with the apartheid government, full, full of gasoline, to light it on fire. It's like some sort of a noble expression of uh, of hostility towards the existing power structure. But they're not doing any of this. They're just radicalizing the vanguard in a very Bolshevist way, like the vanguard of this revolutionary moment, yeah, sending them down to the cities. It's like it's it's Ivan Turgenev. Yeah, but I'm saying to, to radicalism. Yeah. Yeah, but I'm saying that there a Rubicon could be crossed here in the advent of a of a contest uh, an election where the result is unclear but looks like it may be trending toward Trump. 
we have had three and a half years beginning, as you say, Noah, with the very beginning of the administration when three and a half million people were in were were at the the women's march. That's how the that's how this began, and that of course was you know uh, a very interesting expression of conventional political power and the thing that showed that 2018 was going to happen. In my view, that was what you know what they they got a lot of passion behind them here. They got a lot of passion, a lot of force. All that stuff worked. It was all the political stuff that failed them, right? I mean, the the sort of like the investigations into the emoluments, the Russia investigation, the impeachment, all that Washington-centric stuff failed to dislodge Trump or failed to dislodge the you know coming Republican whatever. Actual serious organization at the local and state level and all of that led to, you know, a shellacking uh, in the House of the Polls in 2018. And if Biden wins in 2020, will largely be the result of this uh, reignited fervor on the part of, you know, Democrats or people who, you know, really want want Trump out of there. And this is all my fear there is that this that that stuff which is real and serious and undeniable will be overwhelmed and destroyed by the confusion of that which is good with demonstration and and demonstrations that inevitably will involve violence and that's bad. And and that's where we we start crossing barriers that we can't go back on. Because if it's good that this happens and you know things are set on fire, once again for our drinking crew, the permission structure for this to be the way that you deal with elections. You know, this is where we start. People keep saying we're becoming a banana republic. This isn't a banana republic. This is like, you know, I don't know what you would call it, like Arab democracy or, you know, or like a kind of a, a one of these kind of populist democracies of the 1960s and 70s. You don't like the election result, you riot. You don't let you think that it's not fair, you riot. That's how you respond to elections. That is what the glory of our system has been that we don't do that, we haven't done that, and we may be about to do that. There's an interesting sort of uh, microcosm uh, of this that has happened over the last few months in Louisville, Kentucky, because what you saw there were a lot of local activists who had consistently and, and peacefully been protesting um, the fact that the cops in the Breonna Taylor case hadn't been arrested and that the, the investigation was going on and on. And, you know, they would they would demonstrate they would they, they kept uh, their peaceful agitation, you know, going week after week. And then what what changed a few months ago is that some more radical outside activist groups, one of which was led by Linda Sarsour, uh, came to town, set up camp in town, started raising money there and and from outside groups and just started amping things up deliberately, saying we're here to bring the temperature up and we're going to put more pressure. And then they started doing things like camping out at the AG's private home and refusing to let them enter and, and such. And so now what we have, and, and then the decision comes down. And at this point, um, you've got groups, all kinds of outside groups that have descended on Louisville. And it talk about a tinderbox, right? We, we've had two nights now of, of a fair amount of violence. We've had law enforcement officers shot. Um, and it doesn't look like it's going to calm down anytime soon. So the, at a national scale, 
you could see something like that happening. Um, and my concern is even if try, this is why we joke, but I sort of joke uh, that we would like to see a landslide either way. Right. I mean, there's because a landslide is just going to shut the other side up for a while. My concern actually is that even if Biden wins in a landslide, the unrest will pause, but it's not going to end. Um, well, I think you will see some sort of action on the streets because it's it's still pretty likely that there'll be ambiguity on election night. We're not sure to what extent, but I, it's it's a pretty safe bet that there will be some ambiguity in some states and unlikely that there will be a all every race will be called the night of. Uh, and you've seen, as we said, you know, over the course of the last three months, rioting in anticipation of events, not even, you know, in response to events. So you will certainly see people for whom the election is merely a pretext. But that's why I say it's not entirely about politics. In, in most ways, it's not about politics. No, it's, it's not about politics about at all. What what is what is the Portland what is the Portland action, which I think is now 120 days long? What is it about now? Literally, what is it about? It does not have a topic except Anarchy. destruction. Anarchy, right. <laughs> this is what Abe has said. It's about, right. it's a, what, what is the quote that you had in your piece, it's, Abe? It's a, it's a humanity thing. thing. Yeah, it's, a, yeah. it's about yeah, humanity. It's humanity. Right. And I, uh, look, one of the reasons that this election was going to be uncommonly difficult and confusing and emotionally upsetting, if not the major reason, is of course the pandemic and the difficulty and the and the the fact that uh, it will be a difficulty for some people to vote normally, obviously, it were, were an impossibility for people over 70 to near impossibility for people over 70 to vote normally. I mean, we're still living in a world in which supermarkets and things like that have special hours for people of, of a certain age to shop in, in an effort to make it possible for them to do so without being exposed to others or whatever can't do that at a polling place. So this was going to be a horrible situation. We had no idea what turnout was going to look like. We had no idea what it was going to happen. So therefore, aside from the difficulties that I have, constitutional, electoral, civic difficulties I have with this move toward mail-in voting and, you know, early voting and all of that, because I think, you know, uh, election day is is a civic glory that we are apparently surrendering. Um, so I have structural problems with this, except this year, because there are tens of millions of people who are not going to feel safe going to the polls. So accommodations had to be made. And this is, I think, where, where I, I have to say this to our listeners who are Trump fans, where Trump has done something, uh, really bad and 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 not only irresponsible but kind of destruct civilizationally destructive which is by saying that those who cast a vote by mail or that their ballot is cast by mail or absentee or early or something like that uh that 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 they're there's that's bad it's going to make the election bad uh when he is the president presiding over a country that is uh, wrestling with a pandemic that has now killed more than 200,000 people is the, is easily the most irresponsible thing that he's ever done. And what's more so destructive of him, as I keep saying, because he needs voters over 70 more than Biden does <laughs> actually. And so um, by calling into question the viability value or legality or whatever of 
of this balloting in, in an emergency situation, which is what we are in. We are living through an emergency. Uh, he has made everything worse. And he has made it with, and what's more, as is often the case, he's made it worse for himself. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's unforgivable. And people who wanted to say, well, Hillary said he, Biden should never concede and all of that. That's all true. Hillary is now a private citizen and, you know, is a, is an angry, disappointed, you know, enraged person, uh, who never should have been a presidential candidate in the first place. And I, you know, don't feel sorry for her at all. And she should go away and, you know, go to the Maldives and enjoy herself instead of, you know, coming around and trying to stir things up, but she's not the president of the United States. He is, and he's making everything worse. He has made everything worse in this regard. And in that sense, Bart Gelman's piece, though crazy is a, is a response to a reality that, uh, could and should have been otherwise, I would say. Um, let, let not to to continue with this mood of deep crushing morosity. I uh, wanted to ask you guys about uh, again, not to be New York centric, but sorry, we're New York centric. Uh, the Metropolitan Opera, uh, the largest. Uh, arts organization in the United States, uh, which has more than, I think, a thousand paid employees, something like that, announced it would not <clears throat> reopen for business until September 2021, uh, which uh, is an indication of um, the real difficulties that are faced by a place like New York and elsewhere with theaters, live theater. Uh, any place where people have to gather inside an auditorium, restaurants, auditoria, all of that, uh, in the absence of a vaccine or the absence of a of a of a collapse of the of the virality of the virus or the caseload or anything like that. And um, I know we keep talking about how things are terrible for the restaurant industry and movies. What's going to happen with movies? But you know, we are we are now we are on the heels of seeing massive the massive collapse of a certain type of american entertainment dining movies sports theater performance dead for another year and dead for another year you know i I don't even know how to calculate what that what that means but the blow to the american spirit that is already represented by, you know, like watching one of these football games or one of these baseball games with no crowd, which is just, I find an unnerving and depressing experience myself. And then you can't go to the, you get, and, and, and the boredom, the national boredom, which is something that we we've been talking about. Uh, Abe, talk to me about the boredom and the, the social consequences of boredom. Aside from the financial calamity that this represents for, you know, for a major American industry, yeah, or industries. I think I think the prolonged extreme boredom imposed by. The, I mean, first it was sort of fear, you know, um, uh, that that the pandemic caused, but then the extreme um, boredom of being locked in your home, not being able to socialize, not being able to see family, not being able to see friends, not being able to go into an office. Um, and um, sort of engage with the daily, with the normal 
rhythm of life. And now the, what I've heard from countless people who um, have to be on Zoom calls all day, every day, and are losing their minds over it. Um, it's not only bad psychologically on an individual level, and which it is, um, but it makes for a kind of collective impulse toward mischief um, and um, involvement in uh, uh, you know all sorts of destabilizing things that that people wouldn't otherwise get into. And I think a huge part of for example, the, the the all the protest and civic unrest after George Floyd was um, a manifestation of this kind of boredom. And if it's going on, and if the next thing that um, everyone is supposed to protest is in fact the American election, well, the boredom will not have ceased by then, and and it will feed into this as well. The the Zoom call point is really interesting because there's actually been research about how uh, human beings process experiences, right? And one of the ways we do that is having clear boundaries when things start and finish. And in daily life, we take for granted that work starts, you know, for a lot of us when you go into an office and when then when you come home, it's over. Now, obviously, technology has expanded the reach of some of those responsibilities, but the event itself is bounded. So what a lot of people, I think, have reported experiencing with Zoom is not only that those boundaries have disappeared, but because everything's happening on the same screen in the same place, but that it's flattened other experiences. So if you're having your Zoom conference call at work, followed by your friend's bot mitzvah on Zoom, followed by a call to your parents on, on Skype, it, it all merges together as a single experience. And the way that your mind processes what you've done with yourself that day is actually different qualitatively than the way that we lived our lives before. And I think it plays into the, not just the boredom, but the ennui, right? Like to sound, to, I'm inciting yeah. Jim Carter's memory here, but you know the the sense of like endlessness and and despair that has set in for a lot of people. Right. Well, so last night, uh, both my 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 daughter's eighth grade and my son's fifth grade class classes had uh, grades had curriculum night over Zoom. Ordinarily, you go into school, meet the teachers, sit in the classroom. They show you what they do. They show you the work. You know, all this. So as it happened, they were scheduled on the same nights, two different schools. So it started at 5.30-ish, 5, 5.30-ish, and then ended around 7, 7.30-ish in these two sessions. And it was the first time I've had this experience. So, like, I'm just sitting, and my wife and I are sitting in front of the screen watching. And we're being talked to, you know, because it's not really interactive. I mean, there's a moment at the end of these things where they say, does anybody have any questions? Of course, you've muted your... You muted your microphone, which you're supposed to, and you no, know, and, and I'm just being talked to. And um, I had the the oddest experience, which is that I wanted to jump out of my skin, and it was it was like Charlie Brown's teacher, you know, where they're talking, they're very you know serious. It's all this, and I start hearing, whoa, 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 whoa. I can't, I can't make sense of the words that are being spoken to me. This stuff is being directed at me. Yeah. So, I mean, at least you're engaged, right? And there are a lot of people who are engaged, even though it's an incredibly boring and soul-crushing experience. But what a lot of people are experiencing and what I've maintained for the last five months is fueling a lot of this unrest in the streets is state-mandated indolence. Um, the people who are most imposed upon by this pandemic with financial hardships were, according to polling, African-Americans, 
Hispanics, people with low annual incomes below $40,000, and young people age 18 to 29. Now, the, all the, these are exclusive categories, but they all overlap in this you know, uh, concentric Venn diagram. And right in the center of the Venn diagram are the people in the streets. They have been told that they cannot work. There's no work to be had. They can't have any contact with their older relatives who might serve as a moderating influence. They've been told that they can do one thing and one thing only to have social contact, which is to uh, join their friends in the streets, which is a party atmosphere, as we've been talking about for a long time. You only see the solemn marching and the, you know, the, the resolved political action. But what we see in these videos that are online that don't make it on the evening news is a lot of partying where they all sit around with each other, consume alcohol and have nothing other to do than that. And this is the, this is a condition imposed on them by their local governments. Uh, towards some political end here as well. I mean, they, American politicians and municipalities that are governed by Democrats haven't been especially coy about what they want to see here. They want to see this action in the streets. It's good, it's healthy, it's just. Um, what did we expect? And what do we expect? I think it's exactly what we're seeing. I don't think this is some accident, some unforeseen consequence of public policy. It can't possibly be unforeseen now. We've been seeing it for six months. This is part of an objective. There is something very interesting about the political dynamic in these cities. You know, the the famous blue state model that Walter Russell Mead has talked about that is now becoming ever more evident, which is that all political parties, Republican, Democrat, whatever, until relatively recently, were anchored by and, you know, uh, supported by at the local level, small business, small businessmen in both parties who organized, you know, very effective people, they employed people, they, they, they did stuff, um, merchants, local merchants, restaurateurs, shop owners, uh, you know, people like that, like small businessmen, often very Republican in Republican areas, often very Democratic in Democratic areas. And <clears throat> there was always a kind of check against the most radical economic ideas in both parties and particularly in the cities because realistic businessmen were heavily involved in politics and were part of a constituency that was being served and that it was understood that, you know, you couldn't just layer on every regulation on their back. You couldn't do this. You couldn't do it. Okay. Something has happened in the last 15 years with the, with the sort of the, now the apotheosis of the squad, but the, this kind of thinking, which is that uh, they no longer play a role. And the idea of job creation, the idea of uh, all of that plays no role in the thinking of a democratic pangendra very much. And we saw this in New York City in particular last year in the in the effort to run Amazon out of the city when it was going to create 25,000 jobs. And we had another incident this week where an area in New York called Industry City in Brooklyn that wanted a rezoning so that they could create more business space and retail space and stuff, and it was going to be 20,000 more jobs, was killed, again, by progressive politicians on the grounds that this would gentrify the neighborhood, Sunset Park, that it's in, and therefore cause housing there to become unaffordable over time. And that therefore, the creation, this is now 40,000 or 50,000 jobs that have been killed by Democratic activists. And these are all jobs, these aren't, you know, hedge fund jobs. And so we're now living in a time in which 
there is oddly democratic politicians seem to be feeling no pressure on the job front and they were the party of job they were the party of what the working guy who needs They're- a job Back to New York City briefly, there's an article in the New York Times this morning about the restaurant problem heading into the cooler months. And the title of it is How Yurts and Heat Lamps Will Save New York's Restaurant Scene. And there's an image of this couple outside dining in a giant plastic bubble, and the but there are no heat lamps, right? So the subject of this article is how the city council is now racing to try to approve these already these banned uh, heat uh, sources, you know, there's this big propane fueled tower that has an umbrella at the top that rains heat down on you. I have one in my in my the back of my house. I bought one in July because we all knew this was coming. And anybody who's going to have a social life in the wintertime needs to have one of these giant heat propane fueled heat yeah. towers, right? The idea that this is going to save restaurants, which have the smallest possible profit margin and make all their money off alcohol in the first place is insane. It is detached from the industry. It is detached from reality. It's some sort of a fantasy to provide, again, a permission structure for people to perceive lockdown as a sustainable thing because we're heading into another one. They're talking about it for Brooklyn. They're talking about it for Queens, these places which we are seeing an uptick in cases, and it's real. Um where they're saying, okay, well, we're gonna, we might have to actually not a full shutdown, not a March style shutdown, but a, something akin to it, in order to stave off disaster. But you know, even even the even the non shutdown, which is that you know next week restaurants are going to reopen in New York at twenty five percent capacity. That's they're all going to close. You can't run a business at twenty five percent capacity. That, that that that's nonsensical. I, I understand it from a health. Yeah, but yeah. also switching now to indoor dining, even though it's going to be only 25%, means the restaurant, in addition to only running at 25%, has to spend money now on new things to facilitate opening right. the indoors. Yeah, well, a friend of mine who owns a who owns a, a restaurant in New York and got one of these outdoor pavilions built to put in the street outside his restaurant, I asked him how much it cost him to build. It's literally... A wooden platform with a kind of, um, I, I don't know, it's like, you said it costs $10,000. So how much, how, how, how many meals does he have to serve to make the $10,000 back that it cost him to build this thing? How much of his nut over the, you know, that that's, that's, no one else is paying for that but him. And then, of course, we have this whole political disaster over the, next the the subsequent tranche of corona of of corona relief that didn't go through that could have provided some more support for these for these institutions but my my point here is you're right that there was state state enforced indolence i don't know what the i don't know what the practical consequences would have been if there hadn't been state enforced indolence by which i mean if there were no rules governing movie theaters right I mean, it, if there were no rules, if the Metropolitan Opera could open, it probably wouldn't open anyway, because people aren't going. Not enough people are going to go before they declared lockdown in March. All of these institutions were seeing eighty to ninety percent decreases in business because people were not comfortable going in them. I ride. I don't feel that way. I ride on the buses and subways in New York. They are still empty. 
because people are not comfortable and these subways are now in pristine condition. They are being cleaned every night. Now, I know if you really pay a lot of attention to this, the virus does not attach to surfaces. It's airborne and all of that. And so the cleaning is kind of COVID theater. But nonetheless, people are not riding on the subways. They're not going to go into into these restaurants at 25% capacity anyway. So the state-enforced lockdown, this is part of the tragedy here where I, I, I appreciate the anxiety and anger that people have about this and say, you know, what are we doing? And this is all terrible, sort of like the COVID skeptics. But people are being, the prudence that people are going to, would display anyway. It's like, this is not something you have to do. Now, if you're 22 years old, you sort of feel like you have to go to a bar, you'll die. But, you know, if you're 50, you don't really have to go to a restaurant and they're not going to go. And and so this is part of the tragedy. You know, we're living through an, an unprecedented tragedy it's going to have these terrible terrible consequences but and one I, of the yeah there's a lot of this that is political identity i don't want to ascribe politics to all things that happen here but in the same way that in march uh, american political officials on the left primarily were saying go down to chinatown and celebrate and everyone did they're saying now that you have to lock yourself down in perpetuity and everyone is there's no reason why schools can't open the reason why schools can't open is because teachers won't go Teachers won't work. It's not. It doesn't have anything to do with risk vectors. We all we know this now from research abroad. We know this now from research here. We know the we number. We don't of know enough. I, we don't I have know. To, we'll never I, know no, enough. I have to disagree with you because you're saying that there is a political and ideological component to this, and I'm saying that we have never lived through. Component. It's not just an identity component because I know people who are you know politically as libertarian as they come who are co- who are freaked about covid and won't go outside. I mean I it's not it's not that simple. It really isn't. This goes to much deeper feelings, I believe, that are very, you know, ingrained about disease and infection and dirt and, you know, and 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 uh, you know, all and contagion and all of that 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 hit you in the most primal way. There's also there's also though a, a sort of um distinct cultural moment that we've been in for, for several decades now where uh, the idea that the state should rescue us from everyday challenges is kind of baked into the cake, right? And so when the state, when the federal government, for example, has as its you know spokesman and leader, Donald Trump, who's kind of all over the map with stuff, that the anxiety people feel in any way is ramped up. But I think you're right, John, that even if we had a kind of calm, cool, collected presidential figure kind of dispensing the CDC's advice directly to the people, there'd still be anxiety. But the interesting comparison for me is to look back at previous pandemic-like outbreaks and the attitude of the average American, as far as we can tell by their behavior and by what they said at the time and what they told journalists, was much more uh, stoical than we seem to be now. And that's not to... to, uh, uh, be dismissive of people's genuine fears and concerns, but we're a less stoical people, I would say, than we were a hundred years right. ago in many ways. Even though we actually are also a much safer and technically proficient people. I just think it's never been the case that people where where it has been demanded of people, or or where that the 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 suggestion is that people need to be stoical. Do you know what I mean? It's like as a matter of public policy, it's like. 
that's the problem with. But we me. haven't been asked to be. Our leaders have not right. demanded that kind of right. resilience from us. That's part of what I right. think is feeding um, into this. I understand what you're saying, but I, what I'm what I'm thinking in relation to this is when you know after nine eleven, if the idea was go, don't let the terrorists win. Go out, lead a life as normal as possible, because you don't want them to win. And that is kind of what people seem to say, like, you know, buck up, you know, keep keep calm and carry on. But there's nothing but but it's a weird demand to make in the middle of a pandemic where it's not where we think we every two weeks we think we have new information that says it's really not that bad or this or, you know, there's transmission rates are low, what, all that stuff. And yet then you just have this aggregate number. And if I had said to you in April, honestly, if I'd said to you in April that 200,000 people would be dead by September, would you have thought that I was right? I mean, I think we were all kind of like, well, you know, if it goes over 80,000, like that's, ooh, geez, you know. I mean, it's 200,000 now. And and I'm sorry, but if people in the sound of my voice are going to say, no, it isn't, and it isn't really, and these are comorbidities, and they would have died anyway, and all of that, just stop it. Like, don't, don't, don't go there with that thought process. It's not, it's not right. There's a reason that every major leader in the world is panicking over this. And it's not just us. It's not just, you know, Boris Johnson is now locking down Britain a second time. Bibi Netanyahu is locking down, you know, Israel for a second time. Numbers are rising in France. They're rising in Germany. They're rising in Spain. Um, you know, we don't know what's going on in the authoritarian countries where they don't share appropriate numbers and all of that, but you can't really trust it. And I just think this notion that governmental policy might have caused people to behave differently, they might have behaved somewhat differently, uh, but not everybody would have been, it's like, you're you're not going to, if you're 75 years old, you're not supposed to be stoical Right. But the messaging is that we should all, I mean, I, I guess my, I, I'm not suggesting that people who are high risk um, should just pretend like that, you know, just be tough it out. No, absolutely not. I mean, it, it's clearly a, you know, a very dangerous thing. I guess what I'm objecting to is the idea that the sense that the messaging from our leaders, and this is true on both sides of the aisle, has been either completely inconsistent, outright false, um, or it has said, we have to stay at an elevated risk of panic at all times, even though the conditions on the ground are changing. We do know that, you know, although case numbers are rising, hospitalizations are down, deaths are slowing. This is good news. But the the, the weird sort of need to be the, the sort of safetyism of the rhetoric has remained at the level that it was six months ago. And that's my concern going forward. No, I, I agree. And I just want to give an example. So um, in New York, um, so now restaurants are, op- are opening the, the 25% indoor capacity starts on Wednesday, I think. Right. Um, I don't know if people are going to not go as John says, they might not go, they might go, they might trickle in over time as more people go and they, there's a sort of feedback that it's okay or relatively okay. But either way, Cuomo made that decision when the numbers were what they were. But the numbers hadn't changed in two months. He could yeah. have made the exact same decision two months earlier. Oh, would, I agree. It would, mathematically, yeah. there was zero difference yeah. in 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 where the cases were in New York. And what is the? And, but they're rising, 
And what? Is, and right. Going back they're, to this, they're is, rising nationally. They're not. Oh, they're talking about the boroughs like they're like there could be another targeted lockdown. And what but the scenario that you outlined, John, I mean, what is the end game here? Is that we suffocate ourselves in a bathtub? Yes. We, we, and, and meanwhile, we suffocate yes. every business in this city. Everybody yes. stays inside. Forget until the city. No Forget the and city. And the only people outside are roving bands of marauders who are being applauded for their political acumen. That is the future that you outline here? That's unsustainable. Yes. People won't I, stand for it. Okay, Noah, if I told you where we would be in October, in March, you would have said that can't possibly... We already said... We were saying it was going to be unsustainable by May 15th. Can I, can I bring in the boredom thing back into this too? Yeah, because, please. Because another problem with the, the, the boredom, um, the mass boredom, is that um, it, it enervates the country entirely. So you do accept more because your, your whole productivity and your attitude toward productivity has shifted. So yeah. it feeds on itself. It is why people will continue to um, accept things that you would think uh, that a healthy population wouldn't. But it's not even clear what it means to accept it or not accept it. That that's what I'm saying. In the absence of a sense that things are coming, that this period is coming to a close, uh, no serious business can plan. Right. So now the movie industry, every major movie that was going to be released in 2021 has now been pushed into 20 in, in 2020 is being pushed into 2021. Billions of dollars of investments, which is what this represents, or, you know, a billion and a half dollars of investments that were supposed to produce returns in 2020 are now going into 2021. So there is a loss of income in the present with a hope for the future, which then will push other things off, including efforts to create new work in 2021 until 2022 in this one industry. There is going to be this dead zone period. And I don't know that politicians, I mean, obviously, if we were a different bucked up country in which, you know, people basically expected, understood that, you know, you were going to die, uh, which we don't really believe anymore or think somehow it's, you know, if you die, that's a you know, something terrible has happened. I mean, yeah, obviously, you know what I mean? I'm, I'm trying to say it's like people died all the time and it was just sort of accepted. And now it's much more, it's much more painful for people to deal with it. Um, if we live in a, the fact that there's no end means that um, you could, politicians could say, okay, now everyone can go out and go to restaurants. And uh, a lot of people would be like enough people would say, I'm not going to a restaurant until I get a vaccine, that the restaurant business would be teeter would have teetered anyway, would have been 25% down, let's say. Not 100%, not 80% down, but 25% down. Enough it's a little people- bit different outside of the suburbs. We, we had a 25% capacity here about three weeks ago, and things are open and I've been inside and I've seen to the extent that capacity can be filled. It's, it's filled in the, in the peak hours. So it, it, I, I, I can't speak to movie theaters. I can't speak to large, larger venues, but I mean, it's, it's a little different out here cause there's space. I mean, in places in New York city, there are restaurants. No, that no, have no. Four but seat I've capacity. Been, so I, what are you going to have one person in there? No, I've been to, I was at a, I was at a lunch place in Port Jervis, New York. I've been to a movie theater in New Jersey. I've been to various places uh, that had indoor 
uh, dining and indoor and stuff like that. And they were empty. Like, and they, A, they sort of have to be empty, but B, they're empty and you can't make a living. Like there are still six people working there serving four people. That's not, you know, it's the restaurant I was in, in Port Jervis, New York is going to close because it's already in the zone of what, is now being expected with social distancing and all of that. And it can't sustain itself. That's all I'm saying. I, I, you know, I, I hate to be despairing, but until there is, I thought this notion that we couldn't serve, you know, that, that we would need a vet, that we would need a vaccine to move forward was nuts that the country would demand to move forward. And I was totally wrong. It's clear that until there's a vaccine, not enough people are going to, participate fully in the economy to make it worth the while of the economy to fully reopen except now everyone's down on a vaccine anyway so it's not yeah, going to be the vaccine that's true I, I think necessity intervenes here at a certain point you're talking about a survival instinct ticking in and a competing survival instinct but we've at a certain point, seen... you do you can't engage in long-term planning and we're talking about dueling anecdata so it's not as though we can actually compare notes right. here and, but and, and yeah my experience but... is different than yours well, but it's not your experience may be different than than mine, but you know, stadia in states that are open don't have any people in them. Football's football and baseball and basket and all of that are That is a top-down decision. <clears throat> but not a, not every state does that. There are states that allow people yeah. into their into their stadiums with this reduced capacity thing. Well, I'm just saying, like, it's not like, are you are you telling me that, like, Florida is in great, you know, like, northern Florida is, the restaurants are booming and bustling? Because I don't think that's I don't true. I see no, I mean, I haven't seen any evidence to suggest that out, you but know, outside goes, of. This goes back to Christine's point, which is that there is no, there, the, the pressure on you is toward becoming a hobbit. You're, you're, the, the pressure is to dig a hole and stay there. It's not to do the, you know, the resilience post 9-11 thing. It's not to support your local business physically, presently. Um, it's just the opposite. You're being bombarded every day with tales of, of horror about this disease, which is right around the corner surrounding you in the ether. But then we just, um, we have to put in a word here for Trump because in truth, he's, he was the only source of, uh, you know, from on high who said, who actually spoke about sort of moving forward in the face and that's, of it. And, but, yeah, but, and that's but, why there's but, a political element to this. Yeah, but he discredited it to, completely. I mean, he's talked about it and then he said, swallow bleach. I mean, it, you know, I mean, not exactly. It was really helpful. You know, you know, kind of shine a light down your throat. You know, let's just um, say he had inconsistent messaging on the subject. Yeah, I mean, I, mean I, I just he wasn't the only one. All kinds of governors and, you know, in, in red state governors and stuff like that were, were talking about it. No, that's, and and, and I, I just mean, if like, this, if this continues, if this is into the, 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 the winter and the only people who are allowed outside are rioters and marchers. Yeah. There, there has to be a counter movement. There has to be a display of physical force from above, from saying, from Republican of elected officials, Republican governors, Republican state officials saying, "Listen, yeah, go out into the streets, make a display of yourself." 
Otherwise, surrender the streets to the, to this madness. I'm just gonna say. To I'm just gonna say again that in April you were saying this couldn't last until May first, and it's gonna be October first in a week. And right. well, there here were, we are. There have been. I mean, I'm completely wrong about that, but there have been signs of resistance, and we're not giving them proper credit. But there I'm saying I'm saying that even, saying, I'm sick of this and I'm not going to take it anymore. Yeah, but what is it that they're not going to take? That's the problem. The problem is that they're not going to take it, but unless everybody doesn't kind of take it simultaneously, there are no new jobs, there's no restaurant, you know, the 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 experience of going out and p- partying or whatever is kind of haphazard and weird and discomforting. There has to be a kind of general social compact that things are over because you can't have it can't be halfway. It's like it's like uh, you know London during the Blitz. Like you can't half of London isn't going to reopen and the other half of London is you don't know where the bomb is going to drop. I'm not resisting what it's a virus. And people are doing what people do when they're scared, and maybe they should be less scared. And and we've been joking, of course, that there'll be a whole shift in mood if Biden wins a landslide. There'll be a whole shift in mood, and suddenly we'll declare that the virus is over. I thought that the political demand was going to be on blue state governors and officials because that's where the most damage was being done to deem the virus cured. You remember that was the thing I kept saying in April, like they were Cuomo at some point would deem that there was a cure for the virus. And clearly that incentive is not public is not present for him. And there's a reason because he's still at 65% in the polls. Unless that incentive structure changes, he's not going to change. So I don't know what to say. I this is talk about crushing morosity. This is a terrible way to end, but that's because we're going into Yom Kippur. These are the days of awe, the day of atonement, uh, uh, Sunday night uh, to Monday, uh, uh, most solemn day of the year in the Jewish calendar, most uh, in some ways the holiest uh, day of the year. So for for those who. Uh, Celebrate is not the right word. Commemorate, uh, commemorate Yom Kippur. I hope you have an easy fast, um, and uh, and 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 I hope you have you inscribed in the Book of Life for a sweet year. And for Abe, Christine, and Noah, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.